What's up, everybody? It's Luke Thomas here in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. You can see I'm in my hotel room. How does that look, huh? Creepy. Looks very creepy. I know. Well, I'd open up the window behind me, but then the light would come in and it would make it look bad. I finally got it situated where the light's not terrible, but it's kind of cutting off my head. So maybe I can push this chair chair back a little bit. Yeah, that's better. Uh, what's up, everyone? Hope you're doing well. Today is, let's see, Wednesday, the uh, 5th of July. It's the day after the 4th, of course, because I traveled on the 4th to get here. Hope you're doing well. We'll go for about 90 minutes today. Um, I'm going to make sure this is working on MMA Fight. We've got a new back end. And as a consequence, uh, some changes have been made. Yeah, it's not quite working there. Let's see if I can't fix it real quick like. Um, we'll be talking about UFC 213. We'll talk about International Fight Week. We'll talk about, let's see, um, how about, let's see here, we'll move. See if we are embed. All right, get embed. So the video not found. That's not good news. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that then. That is going to be fun. All right, well, um, I don't know what to do about it. This one's not on me. This is the new back end. So, believe it or not, I have nothing to do with this one. View story. Not on me, gang. I'll move to the boss. Looks like it's not working. If you're having trouble watching this on MMA Fighting, I suggest you go to um, uh, the YouTube channel itself directly. I'm going to tweet that link. Um, let's see. I'll do that right now. Sorry, y'all. This is not on me. This one's not on me. All right. Let's put that up. If you're having trouble, trouble seeing the live chat, vid, go here. And then we put that in the comments. Apologies, y'all. I swear to God, this one's 100% not on me. Usually it is. 99% of the time it is. Just not today. Heads up. If you're having issues watching the video, go here. All right, well, I can't worry about it because there's nothing I can do about it anyway. Everything else is working on my end. So, appreciate you guys watching. Apologize for the technical difficulties, or at least, at least it's working on YouTube. I've got my coffee. You can see my coffee behind me there. Um, I am in the Delano, which is the nicer tower of Mandalay Bay. Was not expecting this. Showed up at 11 last night. They're like, would you like a room in the Delano? I said, yes, of course I would. So, I'm in a very nice room. I'm very excited about that. Nice and quiet, too. I have put on the button to let the ladies know to not come and bother me. You know, it's like a do not disturb sign, but you know these cleaning ladies. It's their world. We're just living in it. So we'll see how things go. We'll see what my boss says about this. Uh, maybe it's working. I don't know. I don't know what the hell's happening here. I can't see anything. I don't know. Working. Forget it. Let's move on. Can't worry about it now, can we? All right. First question. It's a bit of a weird one, given what's going on this week. 
by the way, the itinerary for today is I'll do this chat. Then I will go and do uh, the open workouts for today. They have switched things. Normally it would work out where you have media day, then workouts, then weigh-ins, then fight day. Now they're doing it because they said they pulled the media, but I can assure you they didn't ask me this. Uh, or I don't think they asked Ariel either. Now they're doing it where they go workouts, media day, weigh-ins. And I know that doesn't sound like the biggest difference, but media day is better for me on Wednesdays. So whatever. So as soon as this is over, heading out to that. By the way, if you're in Las Vegas, that is free and open to the public. I believe it's at the Park Theater. Okay, Johnny Hendricks. Uh, I've always been a fan of J.H., but what is going on? 2012, 2013, he destroys everyone, then loses to GSP. That controversy gets buried by GSP's retirement. Briefly, he becomes champion, but then gets instantly forgotten due to Lawler's comeback story, then gets whipped by Wonderboy. He's now missed weight three times, has seemed, frankly, deranged in front of media at times, and a shell of the fighter he was. Can we simply say Johnny was running on roids and cannot compete in the USADA age? And if not, what, uh, what the hell has happened, and why does the UFC keep feeding him to killers? Yeah, so this is a great question. So I actually asked Johnny these questions myself. Um, my boss is going to try embedding the video, by the way, directly into the post, so we'll see how this goes. Um, just, I appreciate your patience. Back to Johnny Hendricks. Okay, what do we say about Johnny? Um, so I asked him these questions directly. I asked him what happened to his punching power. Um, and, you know, basically that there's a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of belief that things were different for him in the USADA, the pre-USADA era. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. But let me tell you what he said, and let me tell you what I think is probably likely. Um, certainly I'm curious at this point about to what extent he was benefiting from um, pre-USADA uh, anti-doping conditions. Now, I, I, I don't... I don't know if it's a different conversation for a different time, but his answer for the punching power was that, um, you know, he's had some weight issues, which affected his ability to really have energy and that people used to fight him differently before they realized he had knockout power. And once they did, they began to fight him differently. There's probably some truth to that. Um, but obviously I don't think that's the sum total. Now the issues you're speaking of where he sounded deranged. I was at that press conference. That was the media day for UFC 207. Um, and he sounded terrible. He didn't make sense. I actually had him on the air that morning, and then I saw him later. And that was where he was challenging people, challenging media members to, like, weight-cutting contests. That was bad. It was really, really bad. That, to me, that part of it is no doubt from weight-cutting. You know, I asked him how long he's been weight-cutting. He's been wrestling since he was eight. You know, we're talking more than 20 years. Not necessarily, not necessarily of hardcore weight-cutting, but of some kind of dieting and weight manipulation that probably wasn't all that great now. How much of he was doing that as an eight-year-old? Maybe not much, but certainly by the time he was maybe at 12 or 13 or some of that. Um, so it's close to 20 years of this kind of thing, and I think he's absolutely savaged his body. If you want to add on to that, I think, you know, some kind at this point a reasonable suspicion that maybe there were other things going on that we don't know about. Um, I think you're probably welcome to do that, but without definitive proof, you know, it's going to be hard to say, but that said, you know, USADA and anti-doping are always upping their uh, ability to go back and test, test old samples with 
more modern technology, perhaps that will be uh, something that they can do going forward. So um, we'll see how things turn out in the end. In the end, maybe he's vindicated in the sense that it's just bad career management and terrible weight cutting. In the end, he may not be vindicated. I don't know how that one's going to go. Another thing to consider um, for this last fight, anyway, as far as this one goes, I know he changed his strength and conditioning coach and some of the guys he was training with. You know, he, I know he had done a lot of work with Stephen Wright. I think he's trained with Stephen Wright two times this past um, camp. And that was the, uh, the guy from Team Takedown. And he went with a, sort of a new coaching staff. And that new strength and conditioning guy apparently had him hitting the weights and wasn't all that concerned about making 185. And you saw what happened there. So I do think he could probably make 185. And I do think that changing those coaches, probably they messed up on the calibration. But there's also the larger question of what happened to his punching power, what happened to his ability to just sort of naturally be a more aggressive, successfully offensive fighter. And I think it's a combination of the things we, we know about. And I do think there's probably some point for reasonable suspicion here. Um, but reasonable suspicion is not the same as evidence. And we always need to be careful about that. So if you individually, privately as a fan, want to think it has to do with the fact that you saw this here. You are certainly welcome to that. But but I think media would have to be a little bit more responsible in sort of trying to figure out what happened here. But you can't also just live in a world where you exclude those things. Well, we don't know, so I can't take it into consideration. I mean, you know, we're talking about a pretty dramatic drop-off in performance. I, I do think you have to take into consideration those things. It's just that there's it's it's just your your hamstrung a little bit by what you can reasonably think about it if you're if you're trying to make a public case. My balls here. Someone's saying IV ban. I wonder if the IV ban is a big cause for poor performance. So many of the former champs have struggled since the rule went into effect. They struggle to make weight and seem flat on fight night. Maybe it's a coincidence. Big Rig is 1-4. Showtime 1-3. Weidman 0-3. Ronda 0-2. Hennon 1-1. But, of course, the IV ban is overlapping with USADA. So that could – it's hard to say what's what. It's really hard to say what's what without more definitive uh, information. But – that's a pretty reasonable speculation. Someone also says he's only 33, but it seems like we're watching the end of his very sad career. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good on YouTube. Yeah, it's. I don't know what to do. If you're watching an MMA fight, well, you're not watching an MMA fighting because it doesn't work on MMA fighting, but um, not sure what to tell you guys. I know it's going to be like, Rook's got tech problems again. This one's not on me. Trust me. Um, okay. This is interesting. I'm going to wreck this because I want to hear. I want to answer this one. Hi, Luke. Just from my interpretation, this weekend sees two big fights. Pitching a strategy procedure based fighter, Michael Johnson, Robert Whitaker, fighting a more impulsive off the cuff fighter, Justin Gaethje, Yoel Romero. I would like to know, given your experience, what would you think are the main differences in each type of fighter's training when faced with the current task in hand? Also, do impulsive fighters spend more time just training their physical attributes so they can carry out those wild? Gaethje or athletic attacks, Romero, where the process fighters continue to drill the basics and improve timing and decision making, or maybe an instinct fighter becomes more process driven when they are dealing with a known quantity, whereas a process driven fighter becomes become less drilled 
when they are faced with such an uncontrollable situation. I hope you know what I'm trying to say, but please tell me if I'm talking nonsense and skip to the next question. No, it's actually a really good question. Process-driven versus fighting on instinct. Love this question. Now, that's one reason why I like these matchups. Um, here's, the, here's my view on this, because this is not merely something that pertains to um, fight sports. It's more pronounced in fight sports, but you see it in team sports as well, where over time, the best teams are the ones where, not merely from what the coach is doing, but the front office in terms of talent acquisition, in terms of, let's say, the American football, acquiring talent through the draft, right? The teams with the best process, they may not win every year. In fact, they may have years where they do okay, and have years where they do poorly, and some of that can be just variance due to injury or something like that. But over time, what you see is that the franchises that do the best are the ones that internally have the smoothest, efficient, smartest processes. Um, so it's not a guarantee for success, but it is, on average, your best bet. In other words, in the case, I would say over time, the best champions, the most successful ones, are going to be closer to what the kind of Michael Johnsons and Robert Whitakers do, where they follow a process. Now, Johnson has been known to brawl, but let's go into the case of Robert Whitaker. Very methodical has a game plan, sticks to his strengths, um, you know, has a, has a vision and a step-by-step -step plan on how to get there. Over time, I think that guy's going to be more successful than someone who just goes out there and fights in a way where they are savage and hard to deal with, but they are somewhat, uh, you know, it's impromptu, it's improvisational. Um, that, imp that improvisational fighting can be very, very dangerous because not only does, you know, the fighter himself not know what he's going to do, certainly the opponent has no real way of anticipating that. And a lot of times these attacks can come in just these incredibly difficult ways to anticipate. And so they can do quite well. They can do quite well. Um, it's, it, it is, it is, it's not fair to say it's, that can't be successful because it can. But over time, just think about what MMA is. Success in MMA is the ability to control for chaos. And that's why the process versus instinct fighter debate is really interesting. Because real success, sustained success at a championship level comes from having a very clear training and execution and strategy process all working together. And in so doing, controlling for chaos. Not really the chaos of the fighter you're fighting, because you might be fighting another process-driven fighter as well but that there are just so many variables that can affect something and success in MMA and your ability to control for them. That's why GSP to me was so successful. He had this incredible ability to control for a lot of different variables. Um, and so he had this sustained success over time and a couple of hiccups along the way, right? But you get the idea. So um, what to me, if Whitaker lost, it wouldn't be necessary a direct undermining of the idea that the process-driven fighter is somehow misplaced and trying to be organized, but rather that it's hard to control for all those variables. Maybe there was some part of their process that needs tweaking, that kind of thing. But if you just think of MMA success as the ability to control for a number of chaos or variables in chaos, <laughs> pardon me. Um, you begin to see the value in having a process-driven um, training environment and, and strategy.
Uh, Noon Shevchenko and stamina issues. Noon's stamina issues have been brought up a lot during the lead up to the to the UFC 213 for understandable reasons. But we haven't really seen how Noon's has been able to address the problem due to her last two matches ending as fast as they did. Do you think Noon's has been able, or Noon's, whatever, to improve on that front? And how large of a role do you think the endurance will play in this fight also? Is it at all weird that Nunes is insisting that she didn't fade in the first fight due to endurance issues but because she was confused by Shevchenko's stance? Yeah, I saw that. She goes, well, she was a southpaw and she threw me off. It's like, right, but the way in which you scored in that fight was not really on the feet. If you go back and watch it, there was a lot of counterfinding that what Shevchenko was Shevchenko was trying to counter her with like a check hook over the top most of the time. Um, and... That ultimately was what, what did Newton, uh, well, when Shevchenko threw kicks, there was easy takedowns for Newton to get. And when she got them, Shevchenko had enough to moderately defend herself on the ground, but not to a whole lot with it. Certainly not threatened very much, like in the way she was able to do against uh, Juliana Pena. So, so here's the interesting part about this fight, is that if you're Shevchenko, how do you approach this contest if you fundamental, fundamentally believe that the gas tank is going to be an issue for her? Do you fight cautiously and not throw kicks and just sort of let her naturally wear herself out? Do you really put it on her and see if you can't exacerbate the end? Because the truth is, Amanda Nunes can fight on the outside, but she's a good brawler too. Plus, Amanda Nunes can take it to the ground where she is, even if Shevchenko has made up ground, Nunes is still going to be better on the ground. Right? Just, I mean, there might be less of a gap than there was before, but there's still going to be a gap. Um, it's a really interesting question. I do think she is going to fade. I do think she's had weight. Uh, I think she's had conditioning issues um, more than once. It was just readily apparent in that one. Um, the question is, will it be too little too late? Is you know, what was Shevchenko's problem? The first one, she was giving away rounds. She was giving away rounds of inactivity. Then when she would throw an activity, it would be an advisable activity, like a kick. You know, Nunes would catch it, take it to the ground, and then essentially just ride her out there for the rest of the round. Uh, and that's an oversimplification, but that's a lot of what happened. So if you're Nuna, if you're Shevchenko, your task here is to put just enough pressure on her to make her work without being super overcommitted positionally or finding the wrong offensive weapon. Um, that can be taken advantage of where she can just simply grind you out. Um, and for Nunez, it's quite the opposite. It's to be offensive enough to really, I mean, I don't know if, I mean, if, if I'm Nunez, I'm going to try and take her down and look for the back. Uh, I'm not really going to strike with her too much on the outside. I think the ground game is really where she's going to have a lot of success. She, it's going to be hard to submit her, Nunez, and it's going to be hard to, um, you know, positionally make a ton of advancements on her. I think Shevchenko can probably survive and defend and maybe even attack this time, but it's going to be a lot more work. It's going to be a lot more work. Um, it's an interesting one. So to me, though, the question is really not so much what Amanda's going to do. She can just follow the same game plan as before for the most part. It's more what how Shevchenko is going to calibrate that and what new skills she has. Does her If her takedown defense is better and she's not going to lose a round on the ground, what kind of opportunities they give her on the feet? Who I, you know, everyone's like, you know, Amanda is a, a rangier, probably more powerful striker, but I think, I think Shevchenko's a better counter striker, and I think she's got better accuracy too. 
So it says, how important do you think the clinch will be in this fight? It seems to me that both Valentina and Amanda have gotten better at adapting their judo to MMA, especially in the clinch with high percentage takedowns. I think whoever wins in the clinch battles wins this fight. Also, Shevchenko was lighting her up a little bit in the clinch as well. Um, you just don't want to spend too much time there because positionally, if you get locked up and now you're twisting and you're turning and you're walking and you're coming back, that's a lot more time for Amanda to get a trip, a knee tap, some kind of a something, an inside trip. Uh, it's just, you know, you, you want to spend just enough time there to do damage, but if I'm Shevchenko, who is naturally smaller than Nunez, I'm going to, I want to, I want to get in there. I want to do a little bit of work and I want to exit. I don't want to spend a lot of time there. You, you don't want to spend a lot of time locked up with Amanda Nunez because she's probably bigger and stronger and better on the ground. So, you know, it's something you can't work in that space, but you know, once you get in there, clock's ticking one, two, three, four, five, go, you know, that kind of thing. Gregor's camp. Uh, last week, John Cavanaugh was talking on Ariel's show like he's heavily involved in Connor's game plan against Mayweather. Doesn't it sound ridiculous? This is his words, not mine. He even said he's going to give a prediction of a KO later on. For the record, I recognize Kavanaugh as one of the best coaches in MMA. As far as I know, he's mostly a grappling coach. So is he lying or is he really involved in Connor's boxing training? Well, he's definitely involved, of course. Obviously, there are general things he can really help with him that are present in both sports. I mean, look, you know, look, I, I think those guys have a real special bond. There's, there's not a lot of duos in MMA where you've got one guy and one coach, and they're really ultra, hugely successful. You see that a little bit. Now, let's say, for example, GSP, Farasa Hobby, Mike Winklejohn, John Jones. Um... And it's more than just Mike Winklejohn, of course. It's Tusa. Uh, it's Brandy Gibson. It's a lot of guys, right? But, you know. Um, what do you guys want me to say about it? Like, I agree. John is, an, I mean, obviously, an enormously successful MMA coach and really, a, you know, a national pioneer. Um, I don't know enough about that camp to really give you a great answer on this one without talking to him. My hunch is that because they're such a tight duo, excluding John Kavanaugh would be a dramatic mistake. But, you know, this is the challenge they're up against. Like, Kavanaugh is obviously a very talented MMA coach, proven, a very talented coach in a number of dimensions, whether it's striking or grappling, proven. But it seems like all of these guys are uh, overwhelmed by the challenge of what it, what it means to fight Mayweather. You know, it's not really that McGregor has to fight Mayweather. It's that McGregor's team has to strategize against a guy like that. And are they really the ones best situated to do that? You know, from the outside looking in, that seems impossible to believe. But um, <laughs> lots of things have seemed impossible to believe with that guy. You know, now here's the other components of that. There are other trainers there, Owen Roddy, for example. And then I'm sure they have some other ones as well. Um, when they come to the States, I had Paulie Malignaggi on my show on Friday. You know, Paulie's going to be there as a sporting partner, but I suspect Paulie is going to offer a fair amount of wisdom. Now, maybe that'll be too little too late. Maybe it'll be right on time. In the end, I guess we'll find out. But um, I think all I'm pointing out to you is that everything about this feels like these guys are taking on a task that, you know, is, seems seems is the operative word here insurmountable wait way too much way too much 
just the, the whole thing, just it, every time you try to examine it, you just feel like it, none of it makes sense, you know? None of it makes sense. Um, and all the way down to what their game plan is going to be. Look, let's see what they can do. This is the interesting part about this fight because there's a, we mentioned it before, there's a lot of different ways that this thing can go. What I'm wondering is, let's say Connor loses, but it goes 12 rounds, and Connor loses handily, but not in any way, shape, or form embarrassing him. In other words, okay, Mayweather was the better guy, but the bigger lesson here is that McGregor more than held his own. Now, whatever likelihood you want to put on that, fine. But let's just say that happens. So they lost, but it was clear that they were on to something. Yeah? Um, what, would that, what would that do to both sports? You know, what would that do? What would that say? I, I, part of me feels like what could end up happening here, whether it's unlikely or not, but what could end up happening here is that if McGregor does something like that, and I don't know that it would be fair that this would happen, but I feel like it might rewrite some conventional wisdom about the level of MMA striking, that the biggest complaints about MMA striking have typically been through the prism of the cleanliness of boxing. If you watch boxing, we talked about this before, you have far fewer weapons, and you have a much more constrained fighting territory. And so it requires the most expert precision in that space, which is why they get started young, and then by the time they've been in it more than a decade, that's when they turn pro. That's when really the best ones do it, right? Floyd is like that. He started as, you know, however young, less than 10 years old, something like that, and turned pro in, uh, after the Olympics and um, really sort of came into his own years after that. It takes that long to get good at it, given those constraints. Um, is it possible that MMA is somehow a shortcut to this? I don't think that'll be true, but I, I do think that if Connor goes out there and proves a bunch of us all wrong, he may end up rewriting a lot of the conventional wisdom that we think about striking in the two arts. Now, again, the likelihood of this feels so remote as to make all this conversation almost silly, but um, this is the territory and the space that we're in. We have to do this now because um, it would be irresponsible to at least not consider the implications of these kinds of things. And to your point of your question, you're like, you know, look, these guys are amazing in MMA. Are they really the best guys to be strategists in a domain where they don't have, I won't say any success, but certainly at the elite professional level, at that level, any success? Are these really the best guys? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. So either what we're going to find out is, and I mentioned this before, I was like, what's your prediction about Mayweather-McGregor? My prediction is this, and this goes to your question. If what we know about the known world is true, Right? If what we think about the known world and all the assumptions we make is true, Connor has no chance. The question is, are our assumptions about the known world somehow misplaced one way or the other? That's, that's what this, is, this, this event is, is, is going to tell us. Uh, the most and least anticipated fights of the upcoming weekend. Oh, by the way, someone says another duo, uh, DJ and Matt Hume. Yep, it's another one. These duos. They're big, right? Like, there's not a whole lot of them that you can really point to, but the ones you can think of are, like, highly successful. Um, 
the most and least anticipated fights of the coming weekend? What fights are you looking forward to most this weekend? Okay. Well, I mean, there's a lot of ones on the Ultimate Fighter 25. I mean, you know, finale. I don't you know. How many of those do I care about? Not, not many. But let's say most on each card. How about this? We'll start there. Well, I mean, there's just no doubt about it. Michael Johnson, Justin Gaethje is... I mean, who is not excited for that, crying out loud? That's like an incredible contest. Uh, also excited, I can never pronounce his name, Mark Diakisi uh, versus Drakkar Close. I don't think that's the most like amazing matchup, but I think very highly of okay, Diakisi, however you pronounce it. Um, he's obviously incredibly talented, so it's another nice step, you know. Um, who else am I looking at here? That's about it, really, on that card. Angela Hill, Ashley Yoder's pretty good. Uh, and then the Jared Cannonier fight was supposed to be better because it was going to be Steve Bossy, but you know Jared Cannonier's a pretty good guy. So we'll see how that goes. I mean, least anticipated, you know, Gray Manor versus Taruto Ishihara, I guess. Uh, and then if you go to UFC 213, most anticipated for me is definitely going to be Romero Whitaker. You know, I like the main event just fine, but Romero Whitaker is really a superb contest. Least anticipated, probably Brown versus Olenek. You know, you could pick Jacko Santos, Gerald Mearshart, I guess, you know, if you want to pick guys who have less of a profile, but kind of amazing that Travis Brown has a big fight this weekend. And there's like no one talking about it, you know. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Missing McGregor, somebody says. Look, forget about the forthcoming Mayweather boxing charade. Tell us the truth. As a member of the media, do you miss Conor McGregor in the UFC? Of course. Of course. Uh, or do you find the whole bravado circus around him tiresome and distracting? Yes, I do. Both things are true. As a fan, I found myself watching YouTube clips <clears throat> of his press conferences, old embedded, etc., as well as his fights, and I couldn't help feel but nostalgic uh, and miss not having him involved in fights in the last eight to nine months. The guy, whether you love him or you hate him, is a big draw and is constantly entertaining both in and out of the octagon. So I'm curious how a media member like yourself feels about his absence from a professional standpoint. He gives out such material and provides much entertainment that I would be shocked if you said you didn't miss him. Well, I don't really, I mean, this may come as a surprise to you. I don't really care so much about that press conference stuff. I'm not saying I don't care, but it's not, it's not what I think. When I think about McGregor, I don't really think about, I think about his wins and his losses. Um, but yeah, look, the guy is obviously a special talent. Don't you want that guy competing if you're covering the sport? Of course you do, man. Of course. Like, it'd be, I, I couldn't imagine a media member saying otherwise. Now, nakedly, am I going to admit that it's also great when McGregor competes? Because it's great for media. Traffic is through the roof. Everyone watches your videos. Everyone reads your articles. Everyone shares your tweets or whatever. Yeah, like, it's, it's good business when McGregor's in town. It's red panty night for all of us. But the truth of the matter is, I just want to see the guy compete, man. I want to see the guy compete. You know, I, I, I want to see what he can do. I want to see what his limits are. I feel like one of the problems with McGregor is that we all know he's crazy talented, but there's such, he's so polarizing. Um, you know, obviously, he's beloved. I'm not saying he's not, you know, he's not Josh Koscheck or something. He's beloved. But what I mean is, and I mentioned this before, I tweeted this once. I was like, McGregor's fights are, but it's just hard to make sense of reality around him sometimes. Because, number one, he'll go and you know, he'll lose to Nate Diaz, and he'll come back and beat Diaz, and it's controversial-ish. Ish. Not really, but a little. Uh, you know, he smoked Jose Aldo, and he smoked Eddie Alvarez, and he's gone. 
you know, now he's fighting Mayweather. I mean, it's just, it's like it, nothing ever makes sense. And he has, you know, he has this cult of personality where his fans feverishly believe that he can do anything if he just puts his mind to it. Um, and as a consequence, they have these incredibly outsized expectations for what's possible. On the other hand, you have his detractors, and now you see many of these pop up in the boxing world, somewhat understandably, but okay, distractors nevertheless, who are incredibly dismissive of him. Shockingly so. Shockingly dismissive of the guy. And so, you know, on the one hand, it's he can do anything. On the other hand, it's he can do nothing. Um, he's the most amazing guy ever. Uh, he's trash. Uh, you know, and so you obviously know the truth is somewhere in there, probably closer to that end than that end, but it just makes understanding him hard. And the way in which you can get a better understanding of that is the more they compete. The more they compete, you can really get a sense of things. Someone's got 50 fights, you know, 50 pro fights. They have a pretty good sense of things because McGregor, um, you know, the McGregor who we got introduced to in the Marcus Brimage fight is not the same guy now. He's better and different and patterns have changed and, and offensive priorities have changed and some things have stayed the same, of course. But all I'm saying is there's a lot of guys that have the same amount of fights, but they've not had this amount of hoopla and cult of personality and then detractors and it, it, there's this weird confluence of events that all descend on McGregor and everyone wants to say what they know about him and everyone wants to, they, they, everyone wants to write the story of McGregor while McGregor's writing it himself. But the problem is um, it can just, it can make it hard to understand what's what with him. You know, I finally came around and I was wrong with him about him at first and I finally came around to him and I figured out, okay, you guys obviously really, really good. But you know, now you're trying to figure out, okay, exactly how good, right? Um, how would he look against Habib? How would he look against Tony? How would he look against, you know, Ally Quinta? How would he look against, and you might say he beat all those guys, but you would at least see some interesting and new things about him. You know, they all say you learn more about a guy through his losses or that the fighter themselves learns more through losses than wins, but you can still learn a lot through wins, especially tough ones, right? You did learn a lot about McGregor in that second DS fight because when he looked like he was Maybe getting ready to collapse after that third round. He turned it around the fourth, and he came back out there, and he put on a show. Like, that's this is what I mean. It's a le you learned something about the guy that day, and I just feel like we. One of the things I miss about him is because number one, it's fun when you walk to watch him fight, and he's always in big fights, and it's always good for us. But I feel like I feel like I don't understand him all that well, and which may sound crazy because you get more from than anybody else in certain respects, but. There's more about his ability as a fighter that I don't know that I'm dying to know. I really, really, really want to know what that is. And I think that's the part I miss the most. Yeah. And that's the other problem. It's like, what if he goes in there and gets smoked by Mayweather? Right? right? That's okay the first couple of rounds. And then by round three, it's just, you know, Mayweather takes over and KOs him in the ninth. You know, or they just stop the fight. What are you going to say you learned about McGregor then? Okay, you could say you learned some things about hubris or overreach or delusions of grandeur. But, you know, that has nothing to do with his abilities as an MMA fighter. This was, that would have been a giant waste of time. Um, you know, it's that we're living in the most unusual time ever. This is such a weird, bizarre contest that, you know, it's just hard to rationally make sense of what's possible and what's going to happen. Okay, marketable Romero. 
Hi, Luke. If Yoel Romero wins the interim UFC middleweight title this weekend, how much of a marketable champion could he be, in your opinion? Not very. Realistically, the UFC would probably prefer the English-speaking Robert Whitaker, who is less controversial and also has the youth on his side, and is promotable throughout Oceania. But if you consider the entertaining feud rivalry that has developed between Romero and Bisping, you think that the title reunification bout would generate more fan interest and ultimately more pay-per-view buys. Yeah, but that's good for like one fight. You know, beyond that, he doesn't have a ton of rivalries with everybody. Um, and even if his English isn't great, who does the love of Romero Ray? The translator interviewed. Yeah. Here's the problem with Romero. He's got the rivalry with Bisping, but he's what, 40? Almost 40? Let me verify that before I speak out of turn. Bill Romero is 40. He's 40. Um, I don't think he's got a lot of time left in the sport. Now, I'm not saying his retirement is imminent, but I don't think he's got, uh, you know. He is a it, insane. He might be the best athlete in the UFC. And everyone thinks steroids and you saw it. No, that's called genetics. The big read, I told you this, that if you talk to people who cover amateur wrestling, and by the way, Romero's been tested at a higher level than any UFC fighter, save for maybe Daniel Cormier, and even then. Um, for whatever testing for. The read on Romero was that he was probably the best athlete in the world when he was competing in international wrestling, but that his wrestling IQ was not great, that he made you know questionable decisions in key times, but he was able to just dominate the, the world with absurd, absurd athletics. Um, that's the read on him. And I know people out there think, if I took steroids, I'd look like Yoel Romero. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't look one-tenth of what he looks like, nor would you compete like he does. He is clearly genetically gifted in a way that is very hard to overstate. Um, so if you want to have suspicions about him, you're welcome to it. You know, but for me, this is this is sort of what I'm talking about. At the he, you know, there's something called the Gaussian curve, which is where you know the world's best athletes are at the very you know five percent end of the Gaussian curve, and even then on the plot points, they all don't overlap with necessarily the same traits. But you want to talk about a guy at the very end of the Gaussian curve, genetic? He's a genetic marvel. You know, it's just always hilarious to me. We're like, we need a level playing field. You don't get one when you've got a guy like Yoel Romero walking through the door. The guy is a borderline genetic superhero. It's like a joke to say something like, we want a level playing field. Okay, good luck with, it. Good luck with a guy that's born, you know, uh, with cat-like reflexes. I mean, it's just, you know, whatever. In any case, um, Adrian Peterson shows up to the field. Another genetic marvel. I demand a level playing field. Why? So everyone else can suffer? In the case of this, though, he's got not a lot of time left, I don't think, even though he has a genetic marvel. I mean, I'm sure he's got several more years, but after that, you know, who knows? He could fall off a cliff. Not, not literally, I mean, metaphorically. Um, as he ages, um, Whitaker is, you know, what, 25, 26? ton of upside. Could be a, a great representative for a, a very important market for them. That doesn't mean so much to Americans, but uh, it's a big deal for the UFC generally. And, you know, Whitaker's a little bit boring, but I think he's boring by design. He's really focused on growth and and achieving and the process, to your point, the other question uh, we answered earlier. And, yeah, Bisping versus Romero would be amazing, right, for all the reasons that we know the answer would be. But I just don't feel like 
you know, the fact that Romero doesn't speak English hurts him. I don't know that he's some kind of unifying Latin figure either. I don't know who would be, you know. I mean, Latino star athletes tend to represent um, the nations from which they come, the territories from which they come, so Puerto Rico, Mexico, right, you know, Argentina. They, you know, it's not like Bolivians, like, oh, look at this Argentinian, let's get behind him. It doesn't doesn't exactly, I mean, sometimes it works that way, but not exactly, unless you're like Leo Messi when the world gets behind you, but you know what I mean. So to me, I think the longer, better play is, is Whitaker. But MMA gods are capricious and crazy deities, so we'll see what happens. Cheers, my cup of coffee. Mm. Dominic Cruz, any news on Dominic Cruz and what his future looks like? Uh, I don't know, but I think he's here this weekend. I will, if I see him, I will ask him. Uh, will he look for a rematch with Cody, another bantamweight, or move it to featherweight? It's a good question. I don't know, but I will ask him. If I, I swear to God, I will ask him if I see him. Has Cruz been nursing an injury? I remember he had the, he had plantar uh, fascia tendonitis, which is nasty and doesn't go away quickly. If at all, it takes a long time to go away. Is it a case where he has too many injuries now and will struggle to actually train in order to fight again? Yeah, I think so. He had to get uh, Botox shots in his feet to numb them out so he could train. Um, let me think about that for a second. Because the, the only way to heal his injury is to not train. So I think he can lower the training load, but he can't stop. And so I don't know what this is going to mean for him, to be honest. He's just got a really wear and tear kind of style, you know the the starts and the darts and the feints and the and the angle changes. It's just hard on the body, and um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll talk to him and see, I'll, I'll see what he says. Good question, Nick Diaz. Is it time we stop anxiously awaiting the return of Nick Diaz, or is there still some shred of hope left? We may see him return one day, even if it isn't in the UFC. Well. First of all, if he does return, it's going to be in the UFC. Number one, contractually. No one says I've got an interview with him on the. I've got, yeah, the Diaz brothers are are scheduled. They are scheduled to be in studio with me on Friday at four thirty East Coast time, one thirty local. Um, so I'm going to ask him. I don't know what kind of answer he's going to give, but I'm going to answer. I'm going to ask it because it's what everyone wants to know. Um, Dana White has said quite publicly that he thinks Nick is done. Um, I don't want to speak for him, but I intend to find out in about uh, 48 hours or so. Uh, of course, I'll stream that live, so you'll all be able to see it. Uh, Holmes comments on Mayweather-McGregor. As you probably read already, Holly Holm gave her thoughts on the coming super fight. I don't call it a super fight, but it's something. And seemed to be much more optimistic about McGregor's chances than most. What did you think on her views? Think of her views, excuse me, on McGregor being able to match Mayweather's speed, no, and how it is easier to transition to boxing from MMA than vice versa. That part is true. That part is true. In fact, one of the interesting novelties about this is we've seen guys like um, Jeremy Williams, half man, half amazing, go from boxing to MMA at a, at a pretty high level, at least in boxing, not a super high level, but a, a good one, a respectable one. And then you have guys like Marcus Davis. But here's my point. Everyone that we know of that's done boxing and MMA typically went from boxing to MMA. 
very few, we don't know anyone who's gone from elite MMA, which is what Connor is, elite MMA, to elite boxing. We've actually never seen that. So this is part of what I'm saying. There's a lot of mystery around this, and I feel like, again, on paper, you would think that would be uh, still a recipe for failure, but maybe some of our assumptions are not are not quite known. In fact, um, this this is a true statement, though, generally about transitioning. In in that, um, well, for example, Big John McCarthy has made a point that. Um, a lot of the problems in MMA judging historically, now this is less so the case now, but at least historically has been that they got boxing judges to become MMA judges and that there was a real, you guys have lived it, you've seen it, there's a real big learning curve with that. However, getting guys who were naturally MMA judges to go and become boxing judges, there's a learning curve there too, but a much less steep one, much less. Um, it's much, much easier to get them to understand the nuances there um, than it is to go from boxing to MMA. So there is something to be said for that. But this is sort of the point I made previously. It's like, you know, um, I think it'll probably end up being something like a metamorphic situation where you do see that the elite MMA guys, they are able to do certain things that elite jiu-jitsu guys aren't usually prepared for. And what I mentioned before was, especially to go back and watch the JT Torres Roy McDonald contest, it was getting up off the bottom. If they were feeling like there was trouble, you know, rather than using pure jujitsu against a guy who you're basically technically overmatched against, you could just reset by underhooking and standing. And that's something that MMA guys are much, much better at, right? And the jujitsu guys, in this particular case, JT Torres just didn't have an answer for. Um, now JT Torres was technically superior and nearly submitted him, but that was one thing that you could tell was like that's interesting. I was not, I was not prepared for that. I think it would be something like that, where basically you're still overmatched, right? But there might be a couple of interesting things that they're capable of doing. People have pointed to the clinch scenarios, maybe a situation where Connor might be able to have um, a little bit of an advantage there that we don't anticipate, given the obviously that the clinch position in MMA is a much more dynamic, involved, thorough undertaking. That's not that way in boxing. That may be true, that may not be true. It could be something else altogether. Um, but yeah, that you're still overmatched. I mean, when people say things like, hey, you don't have to worry about you don't have to worry about um, knees and elbows, and you don't have to worry about kicks or wrestling or jujitsu, it's like all that is true, but you're taking away all that stuff and you're not staying in the same scenario. In other words, you're not doing MMA minus those things. You're doing a, a combative sport minus those things, plus all of these other nuances that are sport specific that don't exist in this one. So you're getting rid of some things, but you're adding in a ton and not just adding in other elements that are new. The same elements that exist, a jab, is way different over there and way, 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 way more precise, way more specific, way more technical. You don't need a super tight technical jab in MMA. It's nice to have, and, I was, and some guys can make effective use of it, but if you don't have a really hardcore, solid jab in boxing, you know you got you got problems. Unless you have a bunch of other amazing things you can do. Well, let's see what's happening here. Well, apparently it's working now on the site. I'm not sure what happened, but anyway. Um, 
So that's one what I'm anticipating. I'm anticipating probably, it's just hard for me to imagine that you can just shortcut your way to beating the best guy of our generation unless he's fallen off a cliff athletically. I just can't believe that. But what I do think is that um, you might find some interesting nuances about what Connor does that a lot of boxing guys don't. And that generally they're just still overmatched. I, do I really think you can just cheat the world by doing this? I mean, that's really what you're saying here, you know. Unless he lands a lucky shot, you know, which is one thing. We'll assume he doesn't land a lucky shot. Do I really? Do you really think you can rise to the elite ranks of boxing by never boxing? I mean, that sounds incredibly ludicrous, right? Do you, can you rise to the top of MMA, never fighting MMA, even if you fought boxing and you did wrestling? Can you really do that? Maybe, but that doesn't seem very likely, does it? You know, the, the best way to get good at something is to do it. Uh, and then to do it for a very long period of time. I just don't think there's shortcuts like this in life. I also think, though, that maybe Connor has more than some of us are prepared for. And that maybe he will show us that there are certain things that you get from MMA striking that can have a transfer quality that we weren't properly appreciating before. And that he'll lose, but he'll lose in a relatively respectable way. That's sort of that's sort of what I, my my view on the whole matter is. But home is right. It is easier to go from a, an art form where you've done something, and you know narrow it, versus where you've not done something, and then expand it, and then all the things you have bad habits in they carry over. It's much more easy to take someone who's got sort of a limited ability and then shape it in a one specific direction. Like so, you got limited amount of striking, and we can shape it in a certain direction. Versus, I've got this really sharp, precise world of striking. I'm gonna carry it over to this open-ended universe where all these variables come into play that make all those habits, you know, not so not so helpful. It's like it's tabula rasa carrying over in the MMA sense. Another Nick Diaz question. Um, been a huge fan of Nick Diaz since forever. The first UFC I watched was UFC 137, Diaz versus Penn. And since then, he quickly became my favorite fighter now that my fandom has been established. Let's go to the questions. Has anything changed with regards to you interviewing him on Friday, or is that still on? As far as I know, that's on. Please, God. Uh, with his latest USADA violation, do you still think we will see the older Diaz brother fight again? Or is it time for Nick Diaz fans to move on and accept that he has done fighting? Well, we'll find out on Friday, but my general thoughts on the situation. Uh, Jordan Breen had a good uh, article in, um, in uh, Sherdog about it, so you should give that a look. But um, also it says, I live in the UK, so will you be uploading the Diaz brother interviews to YouTube? Yes. Uh, I've actually hired a videographer um, to come help me. So... Don't worry. If you don't have SiriusXM, no, no problem. I, I will make these things readily available to you. Trust me. That being said, um, general thoughts on the situation. Yeah, I, I made a point about this on my radio show. I'm just going to repeat it here. I'm not asking the world to agree with me. Um, I get that USADA has a job to do, and I get that they believe in the sanctity of their job. Uh, I don't care about Nick Diaz missing a whereabouts program at all. 
I don't, I don't care. He's not competing. He's not under, I mean, he's under contract, but he's not, there's no bout agreement pending. He doesn't, he's just sort of out there living his life. He happens to have a contractual obligation, technically speaking, but, um, you know, this is what we want our anti-doping authorities to do is punish a guy who's out there not even remotely interested in competing. <laughs> okay. All right. That's what you want. The, if that's what you think really is effective anti-doping, then by all means, you know, knock yourselves out. But it seems to me like an epic waste of time. And um, you could say, well, Luke, isn't Diaz the architect of his own problems? Couldn't he have retired or just shown up or something? Yeah, sure, of course. I'm not saying that complying in the way that he was asked to comply is like the world's most onerous challenge. But, you know, everyone wants to say, well, the Reebok deal was bad and USADA was good. There are two birds, or uh, two feathers in the same bird, man. Um, they, it was forced on them. They had no say whatsoever. And I do think that the marijuana penalties that this organization has uh, created and, and the UFC has helped codify are absurd, are totally absurd, and um, they need to stop in a heavy degree. And the fighters need to have some say in that. You might say, well, look, if the fighters have some say, that might lessen the strength of the anti-doping program. Yeah, good. Good. That's exactly what I want to happen. Um, we live in a world where you can't even have a conversation in a sport, in a sport with a 100% injury rate, with God only knows what kind of significant brain trauma we're doing. We can't even have a conversation. I'm sure, here come the down boys. We can't even have a conversation about to what degree we should move the line medicinally. On the, if the, everyone wants to say, there's hard work, and there's eating tilapia and asparagus, and then there's the chemical line over there. I have never bought this argument that the chemical line is the one that intellectually is defensible, that it's somehow uniquely and separately different. I mean, yes, those things that you can take, they do provide a performance-enhancing benefit, but number one, you could argue that makes sports better. I mean, you're calling it performance-enhancing, and all of a sudden, it's better without it. I don't think MMA or any sport is better without it, to be honest. I know that sounds blasphemous to some of your ears, but... Sorry, I'm not going to get up here and just lie to you about it, right? You can't call it performance enhancing and then say sports is better without it. No, no, like literally it's better with it because it enhances performance. But forget about all that. We can't even have a conversation about to what degree we should move that line medicinally to help guys in a sport where it's a 100% injury rate. It's absurd. It's absurd. It's totally absurd. The fighters should have some kind of say over what they want. And in the end, what, what is the answer here? It's the fighters appear to want some degree of anti-doping. So if they collectively agree that these are things we want to police the ranks on each other, that's the system you should have. If they want that, that's what they should have. But I think that we can all agree, medicinally, we still don't have a really great treatment of marijuana use in the sport. And this guy, Nick Diaz, yes, he doesn't do the whereabouts program, although as an independent contractor, I'm not sure why he's supposed to. And even if he did, was he supposed to? This is what we really want to hammer this guy for, a six-month to two-year punishment over, over a missing orbest program in a, in a time when he's on contract technically. I mean, this seems so absurd to me, so ridiculously absurd. You know, I, I just don't I, – I can't, I can't pretend to care that Diaz missed part of his whereabouts program. I, it, I just won't. I won't. And there's going to be a lot of guys in the media who will. Great. We can have a diversity of opinion. You can listen to them, and you can all clutch your pearls about how terrible it is that Nick Diaz didn't show up to a whereabouts program. I don't give an F. I don't care. I don't think he should be forced to do it. I think the anti-doping program that we have is 
uh, uh, no better than the Reebok deal. And in terms of its the the principle the 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 principle by which it was forced on the fighters is no better than the Reebok deal. And um, <laughs> I just don't care. And I don't care if fighters are using weed even the week of a fight. Don't care. Only request I want is that they don't show up to the cage uh, having used and still feeling the euphoric effects. That's all I care about. And that test they use for marijuana metabolites doesn't answer that question. So you figure it out. So I'm, so, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of having to pretend that, like, uh, you know, guys who want to use marijuana in a significant way are evil. You know, I'm so tired of having to pretend that these guys who put the, put their bodies through absolute hell can't even have a conversation about to what degree we should potentially move the chemical line in a direction that can have a medicinal benefit. Like you can't even, I can't even bring this up without I'm sure somebody being like, Rube Thomas loves steroids. Yeah, well, if they help guys, right, to, to not be crippled when they're 70, I guess I do. I guess I do, you know. Everyone feels like, you, you feel like MMA got better after USADA came along, that like the fights are now just super awesome all of a sudden. I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way at all. Uh, I, now it's a complicated series of factors that make MMA good or bad or have fights fall through or not. It's not really one thing or the other. Can't pin that on USADA, good or bad. It's a number of things. But you feel like all of a sudden MMA got better? They're, they're performance-enhancing drugs, but MMA got better. Okay. You, you reconcile that one. I don't think they got better. Uh, and more to the point, I've discussed this as well. There's no data on this to support this one way or the direction or the other. But, like, does it look to you like the amount? I mean, everyone's like, you got to have, have anti-doping in there because we got to keep these guys safe. Word, we got to keep these guys safe. Does MMA look safer to you? Is there any less brain trauma happening? Is there any less trauma generally happening? Hmm? Does, is there any evidence to support that? None. None. It's a joke. All these arguments about it are a joke. We got to do it to keep these guys safe. If you want to do it to say you want to preserve the integrity of competition, I suppose that's one direction you could go, but even then I don't buy that one. But this idea you're keeping guys safe, yeah, let me know how safe those guys are when that cage door closes and they're getting their brains rattled weekend after weekend after weekend after weekend after weekend after weekend. Right? And now we're going to worry about Nick Diaz not showing up to a program that wants to codify these things and handcuff these guys? Please, man. Zero, just don't buy, I don't buy any of that stuff. Mighty Mouse signs with Malky. Can you give us some insight on why and how this happened? Yeah, uh, did I get a response yet? No, not yet. Um, oh, here come the emails. How could you say that? Because it makes sense. Sorry. Sorry. I hate to tell you that. Let's see. Oh, my God. All right. I can't, I can't deal with it. Um, I have, I have, uh, I am going to reach out to those various parties as well. I mean, the speculation is pretty obvious, right? Mighty Mouse has been sort of just going along with the program 
I'm sure Matt Hume is, I know he's a super smart guy and he's a really successful guy, but is he, um, is he, you know, is he properly situated to be the best representation that Mighty Mouse can get? Um, no, yeah, he's, that's not what he does. He's not really a manager in that sense. Um, and I think Mighty Mouse probably wants more aggressive representation, right? That's really what it comes down to. He wants more aggressive representation. So, um, I'll confirm that with him and you can say, you know, whether or not Malky's the guy best situated to do that. But, um, that's my sense of things is that he, I think he finally realized I can't keep doing things as normal. I need a guy who's 100% focus is representing my interests, you know. And, and Matt Hume does, but you know, Matt Hume is also VP of one championship and runs his gym and, and trains DJ. Like, how good can you be when you're, you know, you got all those different responsibilities? Justin Gaethje, is he the closest fighter you can think of that is like a feral animal in how he fights? Yes. What are your thoughts on him saying he does not care about brain trauma? And what was your initial reaction when you heard him say this? He said it on my show, too. It's alarming. It's alarming to hear, but... Um, <sighs> what do you want to say? This is why the sport has to be regulated. Because you have to save guys from themselves like that. Straight up, I don't care about brain trauma. <laughs> At least he's honest. At least he's honest. Uh, this is why the sport has to be regulated. This is why you need some kind of real clear oversight. Um, this is why you need guys to protect them. They have to be protected against themselves. You know, this this is a clear case. I I actually don't mind on some level that he's at peace with it, but that's not the issue. It's not the it's always better when a guy has his own sense about, I don't want to do this anymore to protect my health. And of course, I'll never judge an athlete who says, I don't want to wreck my brain anymore. Okay. Um, but it's not really what about their calibration is. You want to encourage that, not, not, not guys to retire early, but you want guys to retire when they feel like the time is right and to have a healthy perspective about the long-term effects of brain damage and what kind of quality of life they want to have and what matters to them, what their priorities are. You really want to keep that in focus. But for the guys that aren't, you need to have a fail safe in place. And Justin Gaethje is literally telling you, I don't give an F. So that's why you need another person in play or another entity in play that can stop that. Right? When they say that enough is enough. And we need more significant tests about brain trauma. Right? Because even if a guy is physically able to compete for the rest of his body, if there's brain trauma going on, they should be forced to retire. They should not be licensed by commissions. And that might end careers early. Hell, he might even be at a stage where he's already at that place. Um, and I'm okay with that. I'm much more okay with making guys stop because of brain trauma than I am, um, you know, various anti-doping issues. Uh, so, yeah, that's why, that's why the government regulates this, is, is to protect guys like that from themselves. How will Justin Gaethje do in his first fight in the UFC versus Johnson? How do you see this fight going? What does each fighter need to do to win? Justin, I mean, it's just need to do with it. I think really what needs to happen is Johnson is a very accurate puncher and uh, a very um, um, quick striker. I mean, you saw what he did against Dustin Poirier, right? 
even against Habib in the first round before he got taken down and mauled. Um, he needs to do more of that. I think really staying on the outside, forcing a way out of clinching scenarios or short-range striking, you know, needs to be pumping the jab and moving, 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 and moving, and moving. Really staying on his feet. He's got fast feet. And then I think in the second, third round, maybe, you know, midway through the second round, then begin to turn up the offense a little bit, right? If the guy has slowed down a little bit or has become even more aggressive but in, a, in a linear, more predictable way, I just think trying to tangle with Justin early is a bad idea. He does slow down, um, but you know, he's got vicious punches and leg kicks. He likes to tie up. He can just wear, wear you down. You believe you got to tie up with Justin and believe, I've got one, two more shots, and I'm going to put this guy down. And he just doesn't go down. At least he hasn't yet. Um, not enough anyway. So to me, it's really about sticking and moving, sticking and moving. Something like, and I'm not comparing it, something like Anderson Silva, Chris Levin. Right? I mean, that's, that was a very obviously, you know, different, strange scenario. But um, something like that, where guys just coming at you, ah, and you're, and you're sticking the moving, you know, you're moving and you're circling and everything else. So that's what you need. What was the crazy fight Nate was offered? I don't know. Now that he'll be suspended, it won't happen anyways. Well, Nate's not suspended. Uh, so it says CM Punk. Yes, sure. Woodley's mystery fight. A few weeks back, you mentioned that there were talks that Woodley fighting someone really random. Now he's booked up against Maya. Did you share who that was? No. Um, MMA interest question. After covering MMA for so many years, do you still have the same level of excitement for it that you used to have when you started? It's a good question. The answer is no. But I came at it from a different perspective. Um, so, uh, well, this is hilarious. You get into this business, everyone's like, I want to be an anime journalist, I want to go into this, because they're fans and they want to be close to the action. But when you get to this place, you're not allowed to be a fan anymore. Now, that's a question you need to answer for yourself. What do you really want to do? Now, you can be a member of the media and not be a journalist and, and I think, get to do, still be a fan. You know, Brendan Schaub, for example, I would consider him media. He's obviously not doing journalism, which is okay. I'm not judging him for it. I mean, not, not everyone needs to or has to. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And so, as you can see, he can still be close to the action, keep his fandom, and still talk about the fights in a way that, you know, I think is analytical and, and both fan-like, right? He can, do, he can do all those things. And so he has a little bit more latitude in that direction. But I see a lot of people being like, oh, I want to be a journalist. If you want to be a journalist, it's not that you can't be an admirer of certain athletes or that you can't love MMA as such, but you don't get to be a fan anymore. You, know, you, need, to, you need to ask yourself if you're willing to make that trade-off. And like anything, if you do enough of it, it becomes less interesting over time. But here's what, I will, here's what I'll say about this. It's, it's like, do I like the sport like I used to like the sport? No. But I liked it like a lot of you guys did in this incredibly obsessive way where all I did was read about it and all I did was watch it and all I did was, you know, just consume it at all times. And, you know, I lost friends doing it. I lost girlfriends doing it because I was just so utterly consumed. 
Um, and that's just not good. I mean, I, I meet a lot of fans who are like, I don't care about anything else but MMA. That's, that's not a place you want to be, man. It's not good. You know, and it, and it, it doesn't last. Like, no one feels that way forever. Now, maybe you have to get it out of your system like I had to get it out of my system, but the answer to your question is this. Now I'm in a place where I don't put my rooting interest in a person. I don't put my rooting interest in an organization. I put my rooting interest in, I love watching athletic excellence, right? So it's really what it's about. I love watching, I, I think there's something incredible about fist fighting, um, especially when there's two guys extraordinarily good at it. To me, it is primal. It is, it is impossible to, to look away. It speaks to the soul of me. It makes me feel something, you know? Um, and I still feel that way about it. But what I don't feel is like, oh my God, I love you know, this fighter or that organization. I don't, you can't do that anymore. It, ethically, you can't do it. And more than that, it's just not sustainable. So the level of enthusiasm I have has gone down but I've created it in a way that is more sustainable over time. What type of fights does it take to get you really excited for? Super good ones, elite ones. Are there any fights coming up that you cannot wait for? Cannot wait's a strong word. Well, Mayweather McGregor is just going to be insane. I just don't even know what to expect anymore out of that. But um, Gastelum, Weidman, I'm very, very excited about that one. Um, and, of course, Romero Whitaker coming up. The Jones, D.C., no doubt about it. Um, trying to think what else. That's about it for right now. Has there ever been a fight you were so excited for you could not stop thinking about it? Oh, sure, man. I remember the first time, or the first time, I remember before the Fedor versus Crow Cop fight, I was like, or um, the first GSP and the second GSP um, BJ Penn fight. You know, um, you just think about them all day long, all day long, from sun up to sundown. But this is not, it's not healthy. It's really not, and it's not sustainable. And it's, if you want to get into this business, you have to unlearn that instinct immediately because it will not serve you. So, so oh yeah, speaking of which, Gaston versus Wyman, can you do a breakdown of this fight? And I'll do it later as someone notes in the comments. Overeem's comments on Fedor. Uh, I did not hear them. What did he say? I did not see them. Accurate, or is he just being a tad bit too salty? Overeem is an underrated salty dog. Now, he's not a hater, right? He's not a hater. Um, I've seen him. He's complimentary of uh, a lot of people. I think he gives guys their due. But he's he's an underrated salty dog. You know, a salty dog is like a... Is like a lesser version of a hater. He's not a hater. He doesn't go out there and say, I don't like this guy's success. It's not true. You know, but he is, my man's got, got a salt lick in this house, I'm sure. Um, JDS versus Nganu. Now that JDS versus Nganu has been booked, how do you feel about this fight? I'm not against this fight like everybody else is. I mean, if you care about JDS's health, there are some questions about, you know, what kind of long-term participation does he really have left in the sport and how good of an idea is this? Okay, that's fine. But it feels to me like appropriate matchmaking. I just think a lot of people like JDS, and they feel bad that this might go real badly for him. But them's the breaks, y'all. This, this is the game we're in. This is the hurt business. Um, if he gets really hurt here, then we can have questions about whether or not he should continue. 
yeah, of course, I know that he should have continued really after the Kane Wars. He he did change his game up a little bit um, and really use it to stick behind the jab much more than he had previously. But um, I don't think he was ever the same after the Kane Wars, you know. And I don't think he's, uh, you know, getting knocked out by Steve as quickly as he did. He, you know, he he's left a big piece of himself in the, in the octagon over the years. Bellator offered you a zero and zero dog and a six-figure payday for that fight. Would you take it? No. Also, if you did take it, would you promote or interview yourself? Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, any news on the return of um, Carlos Condit? Nope. Lawler Cerrone, what is your take on the situation with the NSA? It will not happen in 214, but surprise, now it's happening. You mean as uh, Ariel and I reported it? I know there's a concern for Lawler. Uh, what? Okay, if it's the best Lawler versus the best Cowboy who wins, probably in that case Lawler, but who knows what version we're going to get. My understanding was the way it was... In talking to the various people I talked to in order to report that story, my understanding was that um, the UFC may have made decisions really, really quickly, and we're still waiting on some medical information. And then when they got that medical information, decided to dial it back. Like, you first saw Dana White being like, oh, there's no way he's even ready for 214. Well, it, it turned out that there was enough medical evidence to believe that um, he'd be quite ready for 214. So they just did that in the end. So it was just a little bit of them jumping the gun because they thought it might have been worse than it was. Bad enough that he couldn't fight this weekend. Not so bad that it had to call for a tremendous delay. Um, and so I think it was just the UFC being, uh, you know, or maybe Dana White personally being a little bit overzealous. But, um, but all is well that ends well. That, that, that was my understanding was that they, were, they made decisions and they were like, well, the, the final tests are not in yet. What are you doing? And then more information was made available. And they're like, all right, all right, all right, let's just put up 214. Which is good for 214. It's going to be a sick card, you know. All right, it is, uh, well, it's 11.17 here, but it's 2.15. Let's go to the, let's go to the uh, Twitter machine, if we can. You can give me a tweet at LThomasNews, or you can use the hashtag ChatRappers. Someone says, please don't use the word codify anymore. Codify, 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 codify. There we go. Um... Don't touch the mini bar. This ain't my first rodeo in Vegas, y'all. I've been here almost, what, 40 times? I mean, I'm well aware of how the uh, hotels here work. Is it fair to say watching MMA gives you a feeling you can't get out of the likes of boxing? No, it's not true. Just over time, I prefer MMA to boxing, but it's not true that I get exclusively different feelings uh, for MMA versus boxing. If it's a big fight, it's a big fight for me. But you may not feel that way, and that's okay. Like, not everyone has to have the same kind of fandom. Who's the biggest bust in UFC history? Someone who never reached the heights expected of them. Man, that's a good question. Um, I 
That's a good one. Biggest bust in UFC history. It's probably somebody from years ago, not recent. Uh, I guess maybe, um, uh, what's his name? Um, the kid in the Ultimate Fighter, the Filipino kid, who was called the next Anderson Silva. I forget his name now. Um, and that was not fair to him that he got labeled that way, but there's probably something with that, you know. What film do you think should get remade and what Holy Grail film should never get remade? Jesus, I don't know. Uh, what film do you think should get remade? Uh, I don't know. Put me on the spot with that one. And what film should never get remade? Oh, you could probably redo Lawrence of Arabia. Well, I know that's sort of a deep cut, but you could do, redo Lawrence of Arabia. And what film should never get remade? Um, you guys know I'm partial to Akira Kurosawa, so don't touch his stuff. Felipe Nover. Yes, that's the guy. Felipe Nover. I mean, I, I think he's a very talented guy, but, you know, if someone sets you up to be the next Anderson Silva, you end up having, like, a very middling UFC career. There's probably something to be said for what you met versus expectations, you know. If Ronda did return, who would you pick for an opponent and what camp should she train at? Well, she should train probably somewhere close to home. One of those West Coast camps might do. And I would pick somebody for her decidedly outside the top five. Um, so, yeah. Here's my question. Do all the champs get pay-per-view points? Um, it looks up DJ. My understanding is yes. Um, but I haven't gone through all of their contracts. But that's my understanding, yes. You think McGregor would intentionally release vids and promotional material displaying poor technique? Yes. Absolutely think he might do that. Mm -hmm. What are the chances Connor gets rocked and does something illegal? Think low. What do you do with Travis Brown if he loses this weekend? Headway is so thin. Can you really cut the guy? Um, That's tough. They might just cut him at that point, which would be crazy. But I don't. I don't. I just don't see that as very likely. I mean, it's possible, but um, not likely. Rank these in terms of athleticism and MMA. So you got Romero, Jones, Randleman, Brock, GSP. King. Oof, that's a tough one. So maybe Romero one, maybe Brock two, Randleman three. GSP four. I guess Kane five and Jones last. You could switch Randleman and Brock if you wanted. And maybe GSP and Kane. But I don't see how Jones is a better athlete than those guys. Like pure athlete. What's next for you, Jacek? Don't know. If Maymac isn't a super fight, what is it? A boxing fight. You expect DC versus Jones too to do over 1.2 million pay-per-view buys? No. Let's just take a drink if Luke says the word jaundiced. How many drinks did you take today? 
Do you think given Whitaker's speed advantage, he could stop Romero in this fight? Yes, absolutely. We've seen faster fighters like Brunson hurt him badly. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and he's accurate, too, and great timing. Like, he's not, like, super lightning quick. Whitaker, he's fast, very fast. But he's got great timing. You know, everything goes at the right time. How different would the UFC look if it were run by Scott Coker? I don't think it'd be fair to say it would look like Bellator because I don't think that's true, but it might look like a mix of Bellator and UFC. Some kind of mix where you have these deeper divisions that have to be manicured in a proper way, but, uh, but also that you might get some bizarre matchups. Like if Scott, for example, if Scott Coker were running the UFC, I think they would make a Fabrizio Verdun Luke Rockhold fight. I think they would do that because it would be crazy and you'd want to see it and it'd be unusual. Um, and organic to an extent, I, that, that is what I think is some of the key differences between them. So things like that might happen, you know, because Verdum is kind of on the outside looking in. I mean, if he wins against Overeem, I guess he's back in title contention, but, um, you know, he's not exactly like at the very, very top of the list. And Luke Rockhold's kind of doing his own thing in middleweight at the moment, and something like that is what I think Rockhold would do, or uh, what Coker would do. I see the new the new Man United, Bayern, and Juventus kits. Nubs, all three. Um, it says they're working out at the gym on their off day. Well, take less pictures and keep pumping iron. Who are your two favorites to contest the UFC flyweight belt? Uh, I would have said John Dodson, but that got answered. So I guess I'll say Pettis and maybe maybe in one more crack at Benavidez, you know. What are your thoughts on cantaloupe? <laughs> Is it not the absolute worst thing you can eat at a cookout? No, you can eat way... No. Where, where, where does this gentleman live? I don't know where he lives. I can tell you this. Where I live, in the capital of Los Estados Unidos, uh, full of liberals, which is fine. You guys know I love them. But these clowns show up to parties with every manner of kale food varieties. Can we just have a conversation about kale? Kale sucks. Like, I know it's a superfood, and it's it's nutrient-dense, and provides all manner of um, diet support for you, but it's like chewing drywall. It's absolutely gross. You have to blanch it just to make it palatable. These people you go to these places in D.C., and so I was like, here's my... Here's my unblanched, just straight up raw kale, chopped up, julienne, like Louis Marco, with craisins. You know, it's like this. You know, this is what a raccoon eats when they're digging through the dumpster. This is this is. You've seen those guys with the riding mowers, and they have the, they have a it has a vacuum feature, and then the, the the grass clippings go in the back. And they dump them on the ground. It's like pour them on the ground and chuck chuck a handful of craisins on top, and that's a kale salad. It's it's garbage. It's garbage. So no, cantaloupe can be quite wonderful and delicious on a hot summer afternoon. 
You clowns bringing kale chips. Oh, I fried the kale. Well, fry the kale and then throw it in the garbage. I don't need it. If I need something nutrient dense, I can probably eat spinach. Spinach you can make with like cheese and casseroles or whatever. Or you can just have spinach straight with just some lemon and some salt. You know, if you're really that hard up for it. Kale is just, please, this whole thing, we're like, I'm going to have a kale salad. Well, you know, you eat like a giraffe. So don't bring it to the party. If you want to eat that nonsense at home, eat it at home. But I don't need, you know, there was, there, was this, uh, there was this tweet I saw. I think it was Matt Iglesias who made a joke about it. And it was this dude who was tweeting. He goes, um, he goes, just finished a session of hot yoga, cooling down with refreshing coconut water and kale chips. Nothing better. And I think Matt Iglesias wrote, this is the most liberal tweet ever. <laughs> it's true. It's like you went to hot yoga. You had coconut water, and I like coconut water. I mean, whatever, with kale chips, but the combo, you know, and like saying it's, it's just too liberal for me. Uh, almost a year to being full time for SiriusXM. What are the positive and negative aspects of the job? Well, there's a lot of positives. Um, you know, having your own show with your own name on it, being able to have total creative control over something like that, being able to go five days a week in radio is like widely considered to be the holy grail of radio opportunities. So that's just a tremendous amount of fun, and um, you know, talking to a lot more people than I ordinarily would talk to. Pulls me on some of my bad habits. You know, obviously on the bad side, it's, you know, it's behind a paywall. So there's a visibility issue sometimes. But we're working on that. And uh, we'll see what the next contract gives us in terms of opening up some doors. And, uh, um, yeah, so most positive would just be total creative control. And most negative probably would be the visibility issue. Oh, so it said on the MMA Hour, Overeem said he was targeting a rematch with Miocic. Does finishing Verdun get him there? It might, yeah. There's still Kane kind of hanging out in the wings, which is your X factor, but it puts him pretty close. It puts him pretty close. Have you heard anything about the world tour from the Maymac fight? Nothing new. Is it possible that Connor challenges Floyd to MMA? I mean, sure, but Floyd would. I mean, don't hold your breath waiting on Floyd to fight him in MMA. Is DC Jones to the fight for also the number one pound for pound fighter? Um, you can make a credible case that it is. I think it's like the Canelo Triple G of MMA. Would you agree? Sort it's sort of because the two most important divisions in boxing historically have been heavyweight and middleweight, which is this is the middleweight contest being Triple G. You know, these are some of the best fighters ever that have competed at middleweight. Light heavyweight has been like that historically. You know, in, in Pride, you had Vanderlei and you had Rampage and for a while Dan Henderson. On this side, you had Tito, and you had um, Vitor, and you had Randy, and you had Chuck. And so that some of the better fights ever have been in that division. It's gone down a bit of a, a slide, and Shogun and everything. It's gone down a bit of a slide since then. So I don't know that middleweight exactly. I don't know that light. I don't know that light heavyweight MMA is boxing's middleweight. I don't think that's quite exactly right. But in terms of two guys in the same division also battling for pound for pound rights, that does make sense. All right, I am uh, terribly sorry. What's this? I am terribly sorry about the technical difficulties today, but they were not my fault, and I believe they got fixed at the very end. So thank you to my boss, who I believe is still watching. We'll see. Um, if you have any questions for me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. By the way, on the Monday Morning Analyst, I asked you guys if you have any technical questions about Mayweather McGregor. Well, not what are they going to make, and who's going to come out first, and what's their music going to be, and none of that stuff. But if you have questions about technique, Email me at LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. I'm going to talk to, if I don't know the answer, and many times I won't, 
I'm going to ask famous fighters or coaches to help me out with that, put something together for a big preview for that fight. Um, the responses have been tremendous. You guys knocked it out of the park. Amazing, amazing job you guys were able to do with that. So many good questions, so many angles I didn't even think about. Really, really impressive. So keep those coming. They're really, really good. Um, <laughs> News at gmail.com and just put like Maymac question in, in the subject line. Uh, and I'll take a look at those. I can't promise you that all the questions will get answered, but I'll try and get as many of the good ones that I think make a lot of sense as stuff about the clinch and, and, and whatnot. I'll get those uh, answered by as many qualified people as I can. Um, subscribe to MMA Fighting. I gotta go to the open workouts and uh, it is open to the public. If you see me, you can say hi, just don't be weird. And until next time, thank you guys so much for watching. From Vegas, stay frosted.